Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Now John's with us. Yeah, I'm now here. Are you sure? Hello everyone, this is Colin Schindler, along with John Holmes and Patrick Barkley, welcoming you back to another edition of Football Ruined My Life. And joining us this week is the sports writer and former cricket correspondent of the Daily Telegraph, Michael Henderson, who is particularly welcome because he shares my opinion on this week's chosen topic, <laughs> the decline of Corinthianism, or perhaps it's better referred to as sportsmanship. The very fact that I'm using such an archaic term as Corinthianism suggests that the concept is lost in the mists of antiquity. But to illustrate the concept, I refer all and sundry to two iconic, and I use that word advisedly, photographs. Bobby Moore and Pelé exchanging sweat-soaked shirts after their titanic struggle in Guadalajara in the 1970 World Cup group match, and the one of Andrew Flintoff crouching to comfort a devastated Brett Lee after England had beaten Australia by just two runs at Edgbaston in 2005. Those photographs suggest that perhaps good sportsmanship is not a thing of the past, but perhaps I'm more simply on an epic journey of nostalgia for the land of lost content where sportsmen behave with a certain nobility. Hendo, has that kind of behaviour exhibited by Moore and Pelé and by Lee and Flintoff mostly vanished from our sports fields? Mostly, yes. Last year, when England played France in a World Cup match, Kane missed a penalty, and we saw shots of Mbappe celebrating, laughing. How on earth you can laugh when somebody misses a penalty, I don't know. But I would say this. We've seen the death of Bobby Charlton, who was a great footballer, but more than that, he was a great sportsman, and this was recognised not only in this country, but throughout the world. He represented something which we can't necessarily define absolutely. We can't quantify it, but we recognise it when we see it. Bobby Charlton was a great sportsman. Corinthian, yes, possibly. He had a natural dignity and a modesty. And because people responded to that in the way that they did, and so many people did, 
I think people still recognise and still appreciate that there is something more important than the winning and losing of matches. John, do you share that, that feeling? Yeah, I do. But having said that, I'm not sure it's <laughs> changed quite as much as we would like to think in some ways because of the nostalgia. Because let's think back, you know, this expression, it's not cricket. Let's face it, W.G. Grace, <laughs> in retrospect, was a complete cheat. He was. <laughs> and Douglas Jardine and the way he captained England and Australia in the bodyline series, they were not great examples of sportsmanship. So let's not get too nostalgic about the whole thing. I've seen plenty of examples of good behaviour now. I think one of the areas that has got certainly less sportsmanlike is amongst the crowd rather than amongst the players. Crowds now are far more confrontational. We've talked about the fact that before the days of television, when a great player came to play at your side, the Tom Finneys, the Billy Wrights, the Jimmy Greaves, people like that, we went to watch them and we applauded what they did. Now, the bit that really annoys me is opposition booing the best player of the opposition purely because they're good. I mean, that really is boneheaded. Well, that's, uh, that's true in cricket too. Ricky Ponting was a classic example of a truly great batsman being booed as a pantomime. This, is what, I, this is what I'm saying. And this has come, hasn't it, again, all things from television. Mm. Television has been actually a fantastic thing for sport and for older people who can't get there. My father, during the last five years of his life, could never get to matches and things like that. For him... Being able to watch Test cricket the whole time on the television, wonderful. And also for us, we can watch a lot of matches. We've seen a lot of players from around the world. We knew nothing of foreign players or foreign football before that time. But unfortunately, as with a lot of things, your greatest strength is also your greatest enemy. Yes, we all love to see examples of great sportsmanship, but let's not get too nostalgic no, about we, it. We do see things in a sepia-tinted haze. I'm as guilty of that as anybody. I think what you say about television, John, is right. What it's encouraged is this cult, if you like, of the spectators, the witnesses, being participants in the drama. And when you have a goal scored now, the first thing we see is a shot of football supporters who are tribal at the best of time waving their fists at the camera. This is mm. this communal frenzy. But you're quite right when an opponent, an opposing player, goes to take a corner, say. The abuse that these people have to endure, mm. and it happens in football, it doesn't happen in other sports. It happens in cricket. There, is, think, a lot of, yeah, there I, is a lot of abuse I think of in one day cricket, players going to true. the... Yeah. Oh, in Test cricket as well, I, Michael. I is that right? Yeah. I haven't seen yeah. that. Yeah. Well, go back to 1970 yeah. and, and John Snow on the boundary yeah. at... Oh, that, that was a lone drunk. It was no, five o'clock in the afternoon. If it was a lone drunk, mm. it would have been very easy to remove him. Illingworth removed his side he from did. the pitch because of the abuse that was going on. Paddy, I want to yeah. ask you something, yeah. because I know you feel strongly about this. The idea of players going down, not hurt, or being kicked on the knee and rolling around holding their faces. Yeah, this is tactical now. I mean, at last, the game's woken up to it. There are signs that people are trying to do something about it. The first thing, of course, was elongating the match. So mm. you get 45 plus 11 mm. and things mm. like that. Mm. I mean, that is a typically cack-handed way of doing it. 
Personally, I think players should be treated for injuries on the field while the game continues. It may sound harsh, but I don't think there's any other way. What happens then, Paddy, if the ball hits the attendant? Well, it's like hitting the referee, isn't it? Yeah, I'm afraid. It's like hitting the referee, the ball is dropped. It is a reasonable question, John, but there's always an excuse for not doing the right thing. It's not going to happen very often. It's I don't know if it's still the case, but when I used to be a rugby league fan, that was the case in rugby league, and there were no yeah. instances of that. Yeah, something's got to be done about that. It, it drives me absolutely crackers. And it is terrible sportsmanship, because what happens is so often players being in quotes, crafty, hold their heads, even if the only contact was with their ankle, because that's the only time when the referee has to stop. But television finds that out, actually, does it it, not? It does, and there's talk of sin binning for that, and I think it's a great idea. Teams, of course, will get round the sin bin as the same way as they get round everything. They'll practice 10 v 11s all week in training. You can play 10 v 11 for 10 minutes. Mm. It's very unlikely that anything untoward will happen, except that the game will get more boring. But it does in rugby. When somebody gets in bin for 10 minutes, mm. frequently there is a try. Yes, yes. yes, that's true. But the game is slightly different. Paddy, what I but, find, I listen with interest to what mm, you say, mm. but what I find inexcusable mm. is that television pundits do excuse. I was just going on to say Do this. excuse. I was just going on to say this, partly because, but not wholly, I'm not blaming ex-footballers, punditry, for this, because professional commentators who should know better say something about, well, he had to foul him there. No, he didn't. And there are lots of instances where a player takes, oh, here's another one, takes a yellow card for the team. team, It's not for the team, it's weakening the team because it means you can't do it again. That all these sort of cliches are coming in and they're all cynical cliches. I mean, cliches are bad at any time, but cliches which espouse that sort of cynicism are completely wrong. And I do think the media, I mean, the way football is portrayed now, and I would include television on this, I mean, in terms of newspapers, often a great match is portrayed as a refereeing controversy. As far as television is concerned, pictures of players with their arms folded, smouldering at the camera. Hmm. It's meant to sort of, you know, increase the adversarial... Confrontation. Confrontation side of the game. So in those circumstances, it's not surprising that we've bred a couple of generations of pillocks who think... It's perfectly natural. It's perfect, yeah. Yeah, but I can recall a few years ago, Chelsea were playing a European, well, it's now called a Champions League tie against Barcelona at Stamford Bridge. I was watching it in the pub and I'd had to walk away because Drogba, the Chelsea Mm. number nine, kept falling over. Sometimes he was touched, usually he wasn't, but he kept going over as if he'd been caught by a sniper's bullet. Mm. And at half-time, one of the pundits, I shan't reveal his name, someone actually I quite like as a pundit, Mm. all right, I will, it's Martin Keown, he said that he was doing a good professional job Mm. for his team. Mm. What he was doing was disrupting the match. Before you go any further, Michael, one of your favourite players, and Collins as well, was someone we call Francis Lee. (laughs) (laughs) Francis Lee never went over, did he? No, no, he went over... golden halcyon years. He went over frequently. As I said, we do tend to see the past through... Correct. As Colin said, the happy highways where I went and cannot come again. We all do that in life, as in football. (laughs) Francis Lee is my hero. Yes, he did dive. At least Lee 
went down, usually there was some contact. Ah, Drogba no, and others just fall I, I over. Think, I think, in fairness to Drogba, that was true of Drogba's early career. Correct. I think he cut that out of his game and became, instead of a very good centre-forward, a great one. Drogba was a very, he, yes, yeah, he actually, was a very good player. He, he, he became that. a much better player for not diving. Yeah. Yes, he, he was a, a very good player, Drogba. I don't doubt that. But the point I was making, Paddy, is whoever it was, Kieran, I think, said... He was doing a professional job. Yeah, it's this the was, it cheating. Yeah, that this, encourages this the, them. Paddy, this is the problem. There's a code of omerta yes. within the professional game. Yes. Players, former players, do not criticise yes. other players. And neither do journalists. Correct. Journalists, in a lot of cases, and I'll take your profession to task on this, there were a lot of things going on in football in the 1970s and 80s regarding money and bungs and so on. And your profession steered well clear of it oh, because were, you were anxious to keep out our, of our controversy. Our with profession the, with was a bloody disgrace when the bungs culture was rife. With our the exception prof- of Brian Glanville. Yes, Glanville, Glanville's in a Glanville classic. Glanville called well. it in Italy. He didn't call it in this well, country. Can, can oh, I, you're absolutely right, John. Yeah. Can I read out a letter that we've all had from one of our regular correspondents called David Fairholme? who is a Nottingham Forest supporter living in Scotland but watches all the matches. Mm-hmm. And he wrote to us a little while ago, after, just after City had beaten Forest 2-0 at home. He'd been to the game. And he wrote, I really don't want to poison you all, but on <laughs> Saturday, my, capital letters, player, Morgan Gibbs-White collapsed as if he was hit by a train. Stupid Rodri of City for giving the ref and VAR the option to send him off for his hand-raising. What was worse, another of my players gave Gibbs-White high fives or low fives for his theatrical performance. (laughs) And a couple of weeks before, my favourite Forest player, Ryan Yates, one of our own, in inverted commas, gestured successfully for Foster of Burnley to be sent off. He had tickled Ryan in the ribs. (laughs) I think diving for a penalty or diving when you're fouled, in other words, diving to draw the referee's attention to a foul is the least of the sins of football. The point is, again, that's referee's fault. Because if you're slightly fouled and you stay on your feet, you never get the penalty. No, that's never. absolutely right. Absolutely never. So diving is entirely the creation of referees, not players, in my opinion. But what you're talking about is, to me, unprofessional. It's a little bit like the tactical time-wasting or breaking up of a counter-attack by pretending to be injured. Sooner or later, a referee is going to wave play on and the player will have concussion and might get a serious head injury. And it's that crying wolf aspect of it that I think makes it the lowest of the low. Yeah, certain sides have got very adept at that now and they've worked out this head concussion law and do go down. And once they've been fouled, they then clutch their head because it breaks the attack up. Mm. And the referee, as you say, is bound to do that. This is where we get television. It has actually highlighted a lot. How many of Francis Lee's penalties would have been given penalties if we'd had VAR referral? Yeah, Yeah, I'm sorry, I've got you two, really. I can see (laughs) Henderson and Schindler are going to get up and punch me in a minute. (laughs) But no... I think Rodney Marsh was another who was pretty good at that, wasn't he? Oh, who did he go play for? I think Rodney there have been a few, John. Michael Owen went over fairly what? easily. Yeah. Raheem Sterling does too. There was an occasion in the year that Leicester won the league. Oh, did they win that, the league? Blessed, oh, year, blessed year, when Jamie Vardy was sent off by John Moss 
formerly the drummer with Culture Club, <laughs> and he sent Vardy off for simulating, as he said. Now, what happened was that Vardy was very adept at that because of his pace. Mm. What he did was he got beyond the player and then he would move towards the player so that the player running behind would automatically trip him. Yeah. Is that simulation? Is that being clever? Is that getting a reward for your speed? Mm. John Moss was later foolish enough to come to watch a game at Leicester. And I encountered him in the hospitality room beforehand and said to him, unless he paid me £500, (laughs) I would have it announced that he was at the game (laughs) which seat he was sitting in. And interestingly, John Moss said to me that his mistake on that occasion was the earlier book Vardy for something that he shouldn't have done, a really minor one. Mm -hmm. He still felt that what I've described was simulation. My view is that it was clever play. No one said to you, you've got to run in a straight line. You can go that way. And if that means that the player running behind you trips you up inadvertently or whatever it is, Mm. is that a foul? There wasn't VAR in that game. Moss actually later admitted that he also, in that match, gave a penalty to Leicester for a foul on Schlupp. Mm. I thought that was a fraction kind, <laughs> let's put it like that. And he admitted that that was the only way, as he saw it, he was going to escape from the pitch. He was crawling to you that day, wasn't he? <laughs> Basically, yeah, that's everything a, you said he agreed with. Yeah, that's a habit that people should get into. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, but it was very interesting how you saw that VAR, yeah, there are some bits that are wrong, but there are mm. some bits that have got it right. I'm mm. not. Like some people are saying that, wow, oh, you know, it's ruined the game and all no, this sort of stuff. No, no. I think some of the time lengths have, mm. but I do think it's got right some things which were completely yeah. wrong. Well, I'm dragging um, the conversation back to sportsmanship. Let me ask Hendo his memory of the 1980 FA Cup final, West yeah, Ham United. That's well, right. And the famous Trevor Brooking scored. And the yes, Willie the, Young was sent off. It, is that well, right? the, Willie yeah. Young bringing down was it Paul, Paul Allen? Allen. Yeah. In the most horrible, you know, the seven, seventeen-year-old Paul Allen. You know, th- this was was widely castigated in your profession, buddy, wasn't it? As well, yes, professional. That yeah. this was a terribly unprofessional professional foul. Yes. So there's a slight sense of inconsistency. Didn't, didn't it happen in in the cup final in 1985? Yes, it did. Well, it was the first yeah. ever sending well, that was yeah. being sent sending off. Was that Kevin Moore and sent off. Sent off for yeah. a foul on Peter Reid. Yeah, well, Peter Reid <laughs> deserves everything he was getting. Did, did Everton win? No, <laughs> United won. Whiteside, Whiteside. Norman Whiteside curled no. it round Neville Southall's dive. Yeah. But it's he the did. sportsmanship element. That's an interesting comparison between Peter Reid being fouled and Paul Allen being fouled. Paul Allen being 17 years old, mm. the youngest player on the field. Yeah, that Somehow was a factor. To, to sort of bring him down was kind of offence against God, yeah. whereas Peter Reid was an offence against law. If you see what I mean, there's a difference between the two. Yes. And so what I'm asking about is whether that kind of unprofessional fouling goes way back, not just beyond oh, yes. VAR, but Who was into it? the history of, of, of football. Who was the hacker, Paddy, the well-known hacker? Lord Kinnan, someone said, if you don't mind your ways, my lord, you'll come back with a broken leg. And his wife said, well, it won't be his. <laughs> uh, that was Norman Hunter. Right? <laughs> that is apocryphal. <laughs> There's always been filthy play. What staggers me now is the appalling quality of tackling. Yeah. There was always filthy play. And there was robust play as well. And I think you have to make the distinction. I was always annoyed when I 
heard Stuart Pearce, a footballer who I thought was outstanding, called Psycho. There was mm. nothing psychotic about Pearce. No. He was a clean and manly player mm. who went for the ball, sometimes caught the man. The, quote, professional fouls have always existed, I think. I think we shouldn't get too misty-eyed well, about that. There's I, a moment where Paolo Di Canio caught the ball. Somebody had gone down injured. Instead of scoring, he caught the ball. That was at Goodison Park. And I think he was playing for West Ham, was he? And a corner came over and he had what we probably wrote as the goal at his mercy. (laughs) (laughs) And he, instead of shooting, because the goalkeeper, was it Paul Gerrard or somebody, was stricken. And instead of shooting, he picked the ball up and said, quick, get someone on to... And he won the FIFA Fair Play Award. I credit FIFA for this, their Fair Play Award. I can remember, I I hate praising Dundee United, but when they lost one of the European finals to IFK Gothenburg on their home ground in the second leg, the entire crowd stayed to give the IFK Gothenburg players a a lap of honour and threw their tangerine scarves and the IFK Gothenburg players kept them. And it was a beautiful sight and that won the FIFA Fair Play Award. So I think that's a good thing. I think also... I hated at first this business of all the players shaking hands before a match. That was started, I think, by UEFA rather than FIFA. I can't Mm. remember. Mm. Maybe it was FIFA. But somehow that has been of benefit because fans have seen players who chums, maybe two guys both from Sierra Leone, bump fists, but they're different sides. At least it's given the impression that football is not played between people who really hate each other. They're just earning a living. Now, that looks good to me. I like yeah, to I see, see that. I, I don't like that. Not shaking of hands because they don't. They just slap each other's yeah, wrists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just get on with the game. I preferred <laughs> it, to be honest. I really I, am old-fashioned. I liked it when teams emerged separately. So did I. Yeah. So did I. I like it was part in, of the ritual of the Saturday was cheering afternoon. your team coming out. Yes. Whereas the two teams come out together, you're you're almost cheering like a double scarf. You well, know, that was reserved a, 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 for Wembley. It was reserved for the FA Cup final. Yeah, yeah. When they came double out scarves. You know, the double are scarves. An abomination. <laughs> I think if you see someone with one, you should be legally allowed to strangle them. Yeah. <laughs> what I find particularly revolting about football, I think we all do to a lesser or greater degree. The appalling bullying of referees. Now, this really goes to the heart of the matter of sportsmanship. And then, of course, the bleating afterwards by the managers. Mm. It was a penalty. It was never a penalty. It was offside. It was onside. Why can't they just accept these things? These things happen in the course of a season and get on with it. I admired Brian Clough for that. He wouldn't... Clough was definitely advised on that. Mm. One of the problems is now, and this comes back again to television, the fact is that managers have to go on the media after Mm. the game. Mm. Their microphone is shoved under their face. They've got to say something. They're still emotional about it. And I'm afraid they sometimes say silly things. Sometimes I'm amazed, actually, by the restraint in which they do manage to exercise. I think the obsession of the media in terms of what you, the scribblers, called nannies, quotes, nanny goats, is ridiculous. I think, actually, you should tell the game as you see it rather than as the managers or the players what, what, see. He's right. very bitter about it. He calls us scribblers and he's having a right no, no, goal. No, I think he's... Because I, instead of pursuing a career in journalism, yeah. which he could have done, he became a multimillionaire <laughs> instead. I think John makes a good point. As we know, there are many journalists for whom 
the game is merely a MacGuffin. Their work begins at five o'clock because they've got a back page to fill and and managers are forever roaring defiantly. (laughs) I've never yet heard a manager roar defiantly. But uh, they do once a week in some papers. There's something Howard Wilkinson said, picking up on John's point. He said, half an hour after a game ends on a Saturday, and I've been preparing for this all week, we all have, I'm asked questions which, if I were to answer them honestly, Mm. I would need all weekend to think about. And that is the problem. If I were a manager, again, like Clough in the end, he didn't talk to people at all. It's very difficult at 5.30 having to speak sensibly and logically about something when the beans are... A jumping, as Nasser Hussain likes to say. <laughs> but I still think that managers should think twice and then twice again before they hide behind the imperfections of referees. Bill Nicholson told his Tottenham players, every one of you will make more mistakes this afternoon than the man with the oh, whistle. Yeah. And that's worth remembering. Yes. Here's a confession, and I don't know if anybody else does the same thing. As a TV viewer, here's the mayor culpa, Say if Man United, when Ferguson was the manager, got beaten, I would want him on the telly as soon as possible because I want to see him crying. I want to see him humbled. (laughs) Am I wrong? Am I being human or am I being a particularly nasty piece of work? You're being human, but what, of course, means is that the greatest strength of television is what it reveals and we could see more. The Mm. greatest weakness is that, actually, it goes to some places that really probably are best left alone Mm. but that's the nature of it I'm afraid Mm. the point you make Michael very well about Harold Wilkinson who was one of the more thoughtful managers is absolutely correct Mm. because football is an emotional game that's why we love it the drama of it and all that sort of thing and in the moments after the game we do get emotional about it and we say things that we should not say but as you think about it later and go over it in your mind, because we're obsessive mm. and we do do this mm. about the game, mm. we think then in retrospect, hmm, that's right. And of course, sometimes we watch a video replay now yeah. of things that have gone on and go, yep. I was wrong there. Even in an ideal world, there is a legitimate reason for manager, and in particular, referee interviews after the match. And that's to clear things up. Now, 20 minutes from the end of an England doubleheader, Harry Kane is substituted. Now, the obvious question is, was he injured? Because, obviously, that would have a bearing on whether he'd be fit for the next game. So that's a legitimate purpose. (laughs) The trouble is you can't stop journalists having different agendas. Some would ask the sensible footballing question about Harry Kane. Others would say, but what about the sending off, you know, and, oh, God, he could cost me my job. You know, that (laughs) kind of routine. Mm. You've got to have some way of checking things. And in my opinion, it contributes to the tendency of the media to highlight refereeing mistakes. You can't find out the reason. You can't have one journalist who goes into the referee's room after the game and said, why on earth did you send him off? And the referee says, because we had a guidance at the beginning of the season that if a guy... Spits, we've got, oh, whatever it is, mm. we've got to send him off. Mm. So that would sort of lance that particular boil. But I come back to the bullying of referees, irrespective of what managers say after the match. Yeah. They're responsible for the conduct of their players in the mm. 90 plus eight minutes. Mm. And it's inexcusable. 
and it doesn't happen in other sports. Could you imagine if you talk back to the referee in rugby, you'd you be can, reviled by your own you teammates? Can, you can hear what happens, actually, because certainly during Six Nations or Rugby World Cup matches, you can hear the referees saying to an 18-stone muscle-bound man, I heard that. Yeah. If I hear it again, you're not going to be taking part in this yeah. game. Hold on. We're not going to go, this rugby, they're dreadfully good chaps. And all well, that. I don't think they're... They, 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 they go bite they each other's ears off. I don't no, find no. that terribly no, good. No, but we, we no, were specifically but talking about respect for referees. They have a respect and for the referee, you, not because not they all, like them. Not always. They, they have, have respect for them. Some have been done for actually quite aggressively dealing well, with Well, Owen Farrell referees. thinks he is a referee. Yes, but, I think he's an exception. Yeah, he is an exception. They have You're a respect right. for the office of the referee, yes, even they if do. they don't particularly like them. Yeah. They call them sir. This happens in league as well as union. Yeah, yeah. Of course, yeah. rugby is a game based on violence. It is. There's no Correct. getting away from that. Yeah. But the players themselves police themselves rather well. And furthermore, when they do punch each other, and they do... Usually they stay on their feet. They don't fall over like footballers <laughs> who, who don't even feel the punch but, at all. But, but we talk about respect for referees. Last season, or I can't remember when it was, you must have seen Mitrovic actually lay hands on a referee at Old Trafford. And Fulham, to their, and, and I'm a season ticket holder at Fulham, to their eternal discredit, they sanctioned a statement from Mitrovic afterwards saying, I'm sorry I was sent off. No apology to the referee. But I'm sorry for being sent off. And I fully deserve the three-match punishment that will come my way. <laughs> oh, yeah. He got, I think, seven. But it should have been 17. They should have won that game, of course. Yeah, yes. they, went, they went to pieces. They were leading yes. and then yeah. they fell apart. It was a cup tie, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. They were a goal up and they we, fell yeah. apart. We were slightly yeah. handicapped by the yeah. fact that our own manager, who was, should have been the one bollocking yeah. Mitrovic, had already been sent to the stands for... Over protesting, but that should have been the signal. And I know we were going to lose our top goal scorer a bit early, uh, although he did get transferred in the next window. But he should have been banned for such an exemplary length of time that nobody would ever think. Well, that should happen to anyone who puts hands on the Uh, rest. It's the one thing you can't do. What can you get when he pushed Paul Alcock? Eight matches, was it? Yeah, I don't know. eight, Eight matches, but to be fair, that was. Alcock should have been booked for going down to <laughs> exactly, it easily. Yeah. Which footballers do we think all of us represent the best aspects? Gianfranco Zola. Yeah. Bobby John, John as well, you mentioned. Charlton. Trevor Brooking, perhaps? Yes, yeah. Trevor Brooking. Bobby Moore? Bobby Moore, sir. Tom Finney, I'm going back before Bobby, my yeah, time, yeah. of course. But yeah, but current players. Let's talk players. about current players. I mean, I thought mm. Southgate is exemplary as yeah. a football man, both as a player and a manager. Listen, we forget a lot of the time that sportsmen are young men. Yeah. They are playing in the spotlight. Yeah. They are playing under pressure, yeah. whether we like it or not. There are large amounts of money involved. Yeah. Journos have taken money for articles that they know they shouldn't have written no. and so on. We all of us have done things during our life. Yeah. That it, have we been subjected to the pressure that sportsmen are subjected to? we would have done the wrong thing. Well, the perfect example of this was Zinedine Zidane. But for one split second, if you'd said to me, <laughs> name a footballer who's great and sums up sportsmanship, when you said Bobby Charlton, Hendo, I would have counted with Zinedine Zidane. Yes. But of course, he's remembered as much for the left foot volley at Hampden Park as for putting the nut on Marco Materazzi. Yeah. That said, 
I think the law should have been amended, which said sticking the nut on an opponent is a red card unless it's Marco Materazzi. (laughs) (laughs) You cannot underrate the pressure that some of these people are put under. And yes, there will be occasions when people do do the right thing and people do do the wrong thing. Mm. Talk about rugby. Steve Smith, the uh, England rugby scrum half, half, playing for England, very late in the game, gave a really bad pass to the opposition who went over and scored a try. He was lying on the ground, distraught, and uh, the television highlighted Bill Bowman, who was the captain, ran over and picked Mm. him up. Now, Steve Smith, now this may have been apocryphal, in his after-dinner speech said, actually, what Bill Beaumont said to him was, you cunt. (laughs) (laughs) Sportsmanship, in a situation like that, there are two things that stick out for me. In the not-too-recent past, we lost Terry Venables. And I remember at the end of Euro 96, when he, as well as the entire English football nation, thought that England could win a trophy on home soil and... They just fell short in that semi-final because of a, a penalty... And the length of Paul Gascoigne's studs. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Gareth Southgate had missed the penalty. And at the final whistle, Venables, who must have been thinking, I'm not going to be Sir Terence Venables. My career has missed out on its natural climax. He didn't think about that. He ran straight across the pitch to uh, Southgate. And there's a wonderful picture of... Venables hauling Southgate to his feet, putting his hands on his cheeks. Venables had a great big cheeky, you know, Venable-esque smile on his face. And he was saying, come on, Gareth, chin up. Nobody's going to blame you. He was doing his best to cheer him up. So his thoughts were only for his player and not for himself. And another one, perhaps even more impressive, in Moscow, after the Champions League final between Manchester United and Chelsea, which was decided when John Terry slipped on a very tricky pitch and it hit the post on the way. Mm -hmm. And finally at the end, I don't know who hit the winning penalty, I can't remember now, but at the end, Terry, Chelsea having lost, was lying on the pitch utterly distraught and the rain was still teeming down. And Gary Neville, who wasn't playing that night... Was he not? Because he was wearing a suit and Mm. his suit was already soaking and he ran across the pitch... And consoled Terry. Well, that's like Liam Flintoff, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's thinking it's, about somebody other than yourself. Exactly. Those are things that I remember, along with the Di Canio thing. And that's sportsmanship. You go back as well <laughs> to that wonderful picture, and now we know what he said, Alf Ramsey telling Harold Shepperson <laughs> to sit down yeah. when, they, when the World Cup. Yeah. <laughs> In the same tournament, of course, Alf had gone on the pitch and stopped George Cohen exchanging shirts with the Argentinian. The animals. The animals, and he called them animals and all the rest of it. These are some managers after the game and making that point. It was so rare for Alf to do that. That's what made it so interesting. Some managers are good at staying unemotional. Other managers, and we've had one on this podcast, Martin O'Neill used to go potty during the game. Yes. Martin O'Neill was great, adopted many, many things of Brian Clough. He would 
make a fuss at somebody, which Clough used to do, make you feel as though you were the person that he most wanted to meet that day, which was complete rubbish. It was just because he wanted something out of you. Martin used to do that as well. But Martin used to jump about on the side of the pitch like mad, whereas Cluffy didn't do that. No. Until later on, of course, he ran on the pitch and hit the... That was at the end of the game, John, yeah. Yeah, but Clough was drunk. He was drunk. Different people (laughs) behave in different ways. Mm. The game is a game of high emotion. It's the high emotion we love. I can remember taking my son when he was very young to that famous game between Leicester and Arsenal when Bergkamp got the hat-trick. I think there were three goals scored in what was then an exceptional amount of overtime. Leicester had come back from being 2-0 down, scored two in the last 10 minutes to get back on level terms. Then Bergkamp scored a wonderful goal where he controlled it over the head and put it in. And watching my son, his emotions going up and down. And then Steve Walsh, who was an all-time hero at Leicester, an extraordinary sort of boy's own type of character who played at centre-half but scored important goals and, and so on equalised with a stunning header in the, yeah. in the umpteenth minute. <laughs> and to watch my son's emotions going up and down <laughs> like that and the emotions of everyone around, grown-up people and so on. And with us that day in the crowd was a man called Bill Bateson, well-known to uh, yeah. uh, Paddy Barker, who was a massive Arsenal fan, mm. putting his arm around my son and saying, that's football, that's yeah, what yeah. makes it. Yeah. And, of course, we would all talk absolute rubbish. Some of us... <laughs> Managed to stay reasonably calm, yeah. either because of positions of parental responsibility or whatever else, and some of us let it go. But yeah. if the game is not emotional, if the game does not get you into a state where actually you say and talk rubbish, then it's possibly died a bit. Yeah. I mean, I do talk rubbish on occasions at football. Any supporter, we, we, we all if do, they're yeah. honest, yeah. will yeah. know. Uh, Colin talks complete rubbish on occasions. No, no, most all the time. All right. (laughs) You mentioned Clough, and Brian Clough was a remarkable figure in many ways. And one of the reasons he despised Leeds United, it was for the best of reasons, because he felt they subverted the Mm. game. Mm. He had an ideal of how football could be played, part of the reason. Brian Clough had a streak of idealism. He was was an idealist. Yes, he did plenty of other things, but he never sent out teams to kick or to maim. I happen to believe his best team was at Derby County, who won the championship in 72, and I happen to believe that if he'd stayed at Derby County and sort of flouncing out in October 73 they would have dominated English football as Liverpool did in the following decade because he would have signed Peter Shilton, who he always wanted, John knows that. But he despised Leeds United because he used to say to journalists, do they not know how good they are? Because if they ever find out, the rest of us won't win a pot between us. (laughs) But they subverted the game and they cheated. They cheated themselves and they cheated the game. As ever, these people... And Clough, more than anything else, Clough was completely homophobic over Fashionu, disgracefully homophobic. And the way he treated Fashionu was utterly shocking and may have ultimately led to uh, his suicide. You know, nobody's all good or or bad. Clough did represent some great things in football, but he was also one of those people who got involved in bungs more than anybody else. John, I hear what you say, and that's absolutely right. But as a manager, as a football manager, he did have an almost naive 
belief that the game could and perhaps should be played in a certain way. He certainly wasn't a paragon of human virtue, far from it. But his teams never cheated. He may have done off the field, but his teams never cheated. And he did believe very strongly about this cheat. But there is that speech that Michael Sheen delivers as cloth in the Damned United. You know, you can take all your cups and all your pots and all your pans and you yeah. can throw them in the bin because you've won them all by bloody cheating. Yeah, I think he was wrong to say that, though. I think yeah. he was wrong to say uh, that. Don't it was tell, bad management, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, you don't tell John Giles and Billy Bremner and Paul Maidley. It was Maidley who did for him in the end, actually. Yeah. Maidley, the honest man who never yeah. said anything. No. When Manny Cussins said, what do you think, Paul? He said, he's a bad one. <laughs> well, he wasn't, of course, but he was quite wrong to go in and tell those players, you've cheated. You may yeah. think that, you don't say it. Yeah, yeah. Well, they didn't need to. That was the whole point. Well, that, they, they the, the, such the, a good song. This is the thing. In Revy's last season, 73-4, for the first time, he took the breaks off. Mm. They won the championship mm. before Christmas. That was a formidable... 29 games unbeaten. Formidable team. And I still think, if I were asked, what is the best English club side you've seen? Well, I saw Manchester United in... 66, that was pretty good. Three great players in the team. And there have been very good teams at Liverpool, obviously, and Manchester United. And Arsenal, I would say the Arsenal team, the what were they called, the the people who went for a year or year. That was a magnificent team, possibly the best to watch. But the most formidable was Leeds United in 74. I think they they were physically imposing and they could all play. They could all play and did play. And was that the season where they had the 7-0 against Southampton? No, I don't think it was. It was a little earlier. Is that sportsmanship or is it not? Is, is the almost taunting of Southampton? No, I thought it was no. showboating. I thought no. it was showboating. No, I don't think it was. I think it verged on it. I know. And you would have to put Lorne Baxter in 1967, you know, sitting on the ball and all that kind of stuff. Dennis Law and Jim Baxter both took the piss, but particularly Jim Baxter, as you would imagine against what was a 10-man England, who were the world champions, and nobody quite understood why we didn't try and score nine (laughs) (laughs) to level up the scores. But if you're Scottish, you know taking the piss was much more important than scoring any more goals. But that was showboating, but I could never find it in my heart to criticise that. Nor would I I criticise Leeds for showboating in that game against Southampton, because Southampton were dirty bastards in those days. They were a hard And Leeds heart. weren't, were they? Well, Leeds yeah. were saying there, yeah, we can match you physically. But we can also play. But we can also play. And that's the difference. I think they were allowed to do this. This sitting on the ball, Keith Weller, who was one of the best players I've ever seen, he was wont to do that sitting down trick yeah. Yeah. on occasions. <sighs> Showing off with skill, generally wingers, yeah. more than anybody else. They're sometimes inclined to take the mick, which well, is... I- one of the reasons why I rate John Robertson probably as one of the greatest yeah. wingers I've ever seen because he never felt the need. No, he never to wasted a movement. Never. No, when he got a yeah. chance to cross, he crossed it. I mean, the antithesis of that would be Ginola. Oh, yes. Never. By the time Correct. his cross came over, the centre forward was triple marked. That's right. I don't like showboating, and I take your point actually, Paddy. But to me, there has to be a purpose, which is why the greatest goal ever scored was scored by Carlos Alberto in the 1970 mm. yes. final, because it involved everybody yeah. and it ended with a magnificent goal. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And I remember Jim Lawton telling me he used to ghost John Giles's yeah. column for the Express, and Giles said, and this really should never be forgotten, he said everybody in the game and without the game knows that Pelé is the greatest footballer there ever was or ever will be. The reason for that is not 
just that he's a virtuoso. It's because everything he does is for the benefit of the team. Mm. And that's absolutely right. Yeah. Pelé was the greatest player. There, there could be no arguments about that unless you think Alfredo Di Stefano is. Matt Busby apparently thought he was the greatest player he ever saw. Yes. But Pelé was cities and streets above everybody else, partly because he put the team first. I would just like to say that I think Maradona was a team player as well. Yes, he yeah. was. Yes, he clearly And Messi. Was. Whatever yes, they we were. say about yes. Messi, he was a yeah. team player. So was George Best. What? All, George Best was a mm. team player. Zinedine Zidane Johan Cruyff. Johan Cruyff was the man who, it was fine as long as they did what he said. <laughs> I'd be happy to take his advice. <laughs> <Yeah>. on <laughs> One of the and interesting luckily, bits about was, too. Is, of course, Johnny Reps, who was a very good player was in that good side. Scored a lot of the goals. He's well known for saying that actually Cruyff was a complete pain in the arse. I'm sure he was, but he was he was the greatest footballer I ever That's saw in the flesh. That's an really? by yeah. Gary yeah. Lineker, incidentally. Cruyff changed the game, and to me, he is an ideal. I've never seen a footballer who represents the ideal of what I want from yeah. a footballer, just as Garfield Sobers was my ideal cricketer, and Ballesteros, yeah. who was slightly different. He was a romantic yes. virtuoso, but what a man. I don't want to make John Holmes blush on behalf of his client. You can't. You can't. On, not on a podcast. <laughs> I have no uh, shame. But we talked earlier about players who are good examples of sportsmanship. I think Lineker and his former Leicester colleague Alan Smith would be two that come to mind as... You know, I mentioned Gianfranco Zola earlier, and, and I think he's the most likable footballer that's ever played in the Premier League. I'm not saying the best, although he would be in that envelope, mm-hmm. but he's the most likable player. I doubt if he was ever booed on an away ground. No, I think that's probably right. Let me tell you a little story about Alan Smith, yeah. who I think was booked once. I was going to say, was but he ever booked? He was booked once, <laughs> Alan. And it's one of Gary's favourite stories that... Obviously, they played very well together. And in one particular game, the referee, whoever it was, I think Alan had got involved with something or tripped up or something. And the referee came over as if to book him. And Smithy, who's not a deaf fellow, but of course, then his Birmingham accent was probably more pronounced then. (laughs) Look at the referee and say, oh, ref, you can't book me. I've never been booked, you know. Honestly, oh, no. (laughs) Sorry, sorry, honestly. (laughs) (laughs) and the other players were of course completely creased up I think it was Roger Milford Mm. the referee if you remember had slightly long hair and and was a bit of a showman I think in one of Gary's last games in England he was refereeing and went as if to book Gary as a bit of a joke yeah. and Gary actually realised what was going on yeah. smart ass yeah. yeah but it was it was very funny you know people sometimes say there's no characters in the game mm. and so on. there are characters mm. in the game you know I'm lucky enough to be friends with a guy called Alan Birchinall one of the iconic pictures of Birch's career was of him kissing Tony Curry. Mm. One of those spontaneous moments in football which led to all sorts of fallout and Birch got (laughs) letters from Stonewall Group and all sorts of things. And it was just completely spontaneous and very lovely. And well done the photographer for yeah, for Well done it for too. the photographer for getting it. I don't know, is that sportsmanship, is that humour? There That's are, humor. There are yeah. bits of football. We've got two people who've fallen out of love recently with football. Yeah. Now, there are aspects of the modern game 
I really don't like. But I tell you what, I still pretty much look forward to going to games. Mm. There are still great moments in the game that make me smile and I've been privileged to watch all sorts of players and see things at close range and I've got to know a lot of players over the years. Football gives the greatest pleasure to a lot of people. Yes, sportsmanship may have gone down a bit, but the people who give us such entertainment, I don't begrudge them the money they make now. You know what? Uh, Especially as you're, as you're getting 15% I would rather of it. they got the money <laughs> than a lot of the people who'd hang around. Well, it's not a binary choice. Correct. You know, we have to accept that the reason people listen to this podcast as well is that we do love the game. We loved the game maybe a bit more when we were younger, but that's we loved a lot of things more when yeah. we got younger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's appreciate the game for what it is, which is, I think, the greatest game in the world. Well, I can't think of a better way to... Um, you've, you've done my job for me, because that's the perfect summing up. Thank you, John. Do I get paid double? <laughs> you get paid while I get paid. Which is one threatening bit. <laughs> so thank you to John for that summing up and other things. And thank you to Paddy as ever. And thank you to Michael Henderson for being another guest who has contributed mightily to the success of the show. I also think that we chime... The reason I chose this topic particularly... It's because, well, partly because of that letter from David Fairhope, but because I think it chimes with what our audience thinks. We're always keen to know what our audience thinks because it, it, it informs our behaviour mm. and it's terribly helpful. Mm. Please continue to do so. And the address, as you know, is football ruin my life, all one word at gmail.com. And so on behalf of Michael and on behalf of Paddy and on behalf of John, this is Colin Shinter saying thank you all for listening. See you all next time on Football Ruin My Life. Sports Social Podcast Network.